0: Listen up. Listen, people of God. Pay attention. Hear the voice of the Lord your God. The Lord our God. Listen to the utterly unique voice of the one true God. The voice that is like no other. Or in other words... Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thus begins the Shema. The Shema consisting of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, continuing in chapter 11, verses 13 through 21, and then with a third portion in Numbers 15, is conceivably the single, solitary, most central set of Scripture passages in all of Jewish life. For thousands of years, this set of truths has formed the first prayer a child learns, the last words spoken before death, the first prayer offered each morning, and the last prayer offered each night. These, among other practices, demonstrate the centrality of the truths of the Shema in the lives of God's people. Now these truths delivered to Israel in the Shema were incredibly relevant. They were deeply needed in that moment because in that moment the people of Israel were only a few decades removed From the voices and claims of the Egyptian gods, voices that clamored and competed for attention with the voice of the one true God. Then they had wandered through the desert for 40 years and had been tempted to follow the voices of other gods there as well. Just look at Mount Sinai for evidence of that. And now, they're on the verge of entering the promised land, where God knows that they will be confronted with the clamor of even more gods, even more voices competing for their attention. That is, they were, are, and will be regularly tempted to abandon the voice of God in favor of other voices, lesser voices. And questions like these arose among them. Why listen to his voice? Why give heed to his word? Why hear him? When there are so many other voices, so many other options, frankly, options I might like better. Why should I give his voice priority? What a relief it is that we do not face such temptations today. It's a good thing that we have never been, we are not, and we never will be tempted to abandon the voice of God in favor of other voices, lesser voices. If only that were true. We all know that we face the same temptations and the same questions today. Why listen to God over parents, family, peers? Why should His voice get priority? Over social media influencers, musicians, authors, poets, political parties, political pundits, government officials. And what about our own voices, our own desires? Why not just give them priority? That's what we're told to do today, right? I mean, you've watched Disney. Follow your own voice. Why not just listen to the culture? Why listen to God above and before every other voice? Well, that's the first of two questions we'll look at to answer from the Shema this morning. And though I hate to contradict anyone, in this case, I'm going to go against Dale and say, you do have permission to look at one page of the bulletin during the sermon. Inside the back page, you will find a sermon outline that I hope will help you follow along with where we're going this morning. So, sorry, Dale. Now, in order to answer these questions, we should actually look at the text. In fact, that's one way we practice listening to God's voice. So if you have your Bible app or a Bible in front of you, please open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're just going to read the two portions from Deuteronomy. We won't have time for the numbers portion this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. And when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then flip over to chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. So, if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today... To love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away... And worship other gods. And bow down to them. That is to listen to other voices. Lesser voices. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. And he will shut the heavens. So that it will not rain. And the ground will yield no produce. And you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So that your days and the days of your children may be many. In the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Why should we listen to God's voice above all the other voices that surround us? Because in listening to God's voice, we find life. Because in listening to God's voice, we find life. Son, dinner's ready. Come to the table. Why? Because I am your father and I said so, that's why. Sound familiar? I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of us have said something like that. And I also won't ask how recently. Now there are good reasons why a loving parent would want their child to come to the table for dinner. Reasons that are actually quite vital to their ongoing existence. Nourishment, family relationships, learning, obedience, and so many other things. But we parents all too often get tired, don't we? And it's too easy to resort to simply saying, I am your parent, I have spoken. Obey. As though that settles it. So isn't it interesting that God so often gives us the why behind his commands in Scripture? I mean, if we as parents have the right to expect obedience from our children solely on the, basis, uh, on the basis of our authoritative role in their lives, I mean, how much more does God have the right to do the same with us? You ever noticed how often God gives a command and then immediately follows it up with, so that. It's all around the Shema. Deuteronomy 5.29, keep all my commands always so that it might go well with you. 5.33, walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days. Hear, O Israel, 6.3, just before the Shema, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly. Right after the Shema. 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. 624, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive. Chapter 11, we find the same thing before the Shema. So that you may have strength. So that you may live long. And in the final verse of that portion in 11, that your days and the days of your children may be long. Listen so that you may live. This is all over the Bible. It's not just Deuteronomy, and we don't have time to look at all the texts, but let me give you one Old Testament text and one New Testament, just as a sampling. Isaiah 55, "Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me. That your soul may live. Listen to find life. And then Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, in human form, says in John 10, when speaking of the sheep who know his voice and follow him, he speaks of this same thing. There isn't a literal so that necessarily in the passage, but it's clear that in listening to Jesus' voice, The sheep are saved, they find good pasture, and at the very end of that paragraph, we read these famous words from Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God is not stingy. He does not give us commands or tell us to listen to him solely on the basis of authority, though he could. He tells us why. Pattern continues all throughout the Bible. Listening to God is a matter of life. Now, conversely, if in listening we find life, then in refusing to listen, we miss out on life. We settle for death even if that death seems like life in that moment. And if you think about that, isn't that the essence of all our sin? We trade in life for some form of death that feels like life in the given moment, but cannot give the life that God gives. Secondly, because in listening to God's voice, we love. The Shema is a cornerstone of God's revelation to Israel. And for evidence of that fact, we can look no further than Jesus himself. In Matthew 22, when asked what the greatest command in all the law was, Jesus quoted the Shema love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, which he called the first and greatest commandment. The contexts of Deuteronomy 6 and 11 make clear that listening to God and loving God are inseparably linked. So that the instruction to obey God's commands in the Shema, there are all kinds of commands in Deuteronomy. But the immediate context of hearing him and listening to his commands is simply listen and love. Those are the two commands that are given. Listen and love. In fact, if we take a step back, listening, life, and love are so intimately intertwined that there's no way to remove any one of the three without doing damage to the other two. So let me see if I can explain this. I love God, and I'm experiencing the abundant life He's giving me, but I don't want to listen to Him. How did that work out for Adam and Eve? In not listening to God, they actually were not, loving God, and in not listening to God, they actually robbed themselves of the abundant life he had given them. So that the very first sin involved listening to a voice other than God's, a lesser voice. It's as old as the garden. Or, I'm going to listen to God, and I'm experiencing the abundant life he's given me, but I, I, I don't love him. And I don't need to love him. Well, Pastor Ken's sermon last week, though it was talking about joy, really addresses the same idea here. To listen and experience life but to not love actually leads to a slavish, joyless faith that is likely not faith at all. certainly not life, not abundant life. Consider Luke 7. An unnamed woman washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She pours perfume on those feet in worship. And the Pharisee who owns the house criticizes her. Notice Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisee. It's all about love. You didn't love me. She has. Love is so uh, integral to this. But this one might be the most common one for us. Pastor, I'm I'm listening to God. I, I really am trying to listen to him. And I love him, he's done so much for me, but pastor I'm not experiencing that abundant life that the scriptures talk about. It's a very common experience for us as Christians. But God is too good to not give you abundant life. The problem is so often we're looking for that abundant life in possessions and health and success. Because that's what the modern-day false teachers, known as prosperity preachers, keep telling us. And they're wrong. The very disciples who heard Jesus talk about abundant life in John 10 are also told that they will suffer and even be killed in John 16. And there is no contradiction between the two. The abundant life that God intends is the kind of life you find among people who have gone through great suffering, persecution, and pain, and yet they have this otherworldly joy in them that cannot be explained. And the world doesn't know what to do with it because the world can't replicate it. If pain and suffering or even persecution describe your life today keep listening keep loving him and know that he does have abundant life for you just make sure you're not looking for it according to the world's standards but according to his it is there he is faithful now conversely If in listening we love God, then in refusing to listen we fail to love God. In fact, we settle for hatred of him, even if that hatred seems like love in the moment. So we listen to find life, we listen to love, and thirdly, we listen because his voice is the utterly unique voice of him who is life and love. Because his voice is the utterly unique voice of him who is life and is love. Did you catch that uniqueness in the opening verse of the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Six words in the original Hebrew text. And we'll look at each one very briefly. Hear. Listen. Obey. This is one of those instances where we look at the English text, and we think we have three different words, but in Hebrew, it's actually Shema, Shema, and Shema. It's all the same word. Uh, If you want to look more into that, the Bible Project has a very helpful video explaining the Hebrew of the Shema, points out there is no separate word for obey in Hebrew. It's Shema, so that... To listen is to obey, to obey is to listen, to hear. It all wraps together. Yisrael, Israel, God's chosen people. The finer points of the overlap of God's relationship with the nation of Israel as his chosen people and his relationship with us as the church today. Uh, Scholars have debated that. There's all kinds of, of debates on that. But for our purposes This is all we need to know. It is certainly consistent to say that the same command given to Israel in Deuteronomy 6-4 applies to us today. If, church, you are in fact God's people, you should listen to him. Hear, O people of God, Adonai. Who do we listen to? We listen to Adonai. That's translated the Lord. It's actually an instance where... The Hebrew text has inserted the term Adonai, the Lord, in place of the covenant name of God that God first gave to Moses. It's so holy, it's treated with such uh, reverence that it's replaced in the original text. But make no debate, we are talking about the one true God, the covenant God who has revealed himself to Moses, not just some God of our choosing, that God, the one God, and he is our God, Eloheinu. Adonai, the covenant God, is personal. He is relational. He is not some distant deity off in the universe who cares nothing for humanity. And he is our God, communally. We are his people together. Not just a collection of individuals, a whole body. And Adonai Echad. He is one. This word echai can be uh, an adjective, one. Our God is one in number. Monotheism, absolutely true. But it can also be an adverb. It can mean alone or only. And some of you are like too much grammar on a Sunday morning. Fair enough. Suffice it to say, it it, it can mean one, it can mean alone or only, and a lot of scholars say, actually, there's no reason it can't mean all of these things at the same time. And that's what it most likely means. So that it's true to say that our God is one, it is true to say that he is God alone, it is true to say that he is the only God. And so we listen to the utterly unique voice of the God who alone is God. There is no other. And what kind of voice is this voice? Oh. His voice is unlike the voices of anything else, any other being. It is a voice that spoke galaxies into being. A voice that is described in the Bible as thunderous, like a trumpet blast. Rushing waters, roaring, rumbling, resounding yet also as gentle as a whisper on the wind. The voice of our God terrifies His enemies, makes the earth melt, shakes deserts, breaks cedars, twists oaks, and so much more. But this powerful voice is also a voice that draws near. draws near to His people. A voice of communion, of closeness of care, of provision. The voice that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, over Jesus at his baptism and at his transfiguration. It is the voice of the only one who is life. We turn again to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, God in human form, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No other being can say accurately, I am life, but God. Or, I am love, 1 John four sixteen. God is love. It is the only voice, therefore, that should get final authority in our lives. It's the only voice worth giving final authority to in our lives. Because to give any other voice, the place of privilege is to commit idolatry. It is to worship a false god, to worship one who is not life and is not love. So listen, people of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, he alone is God, he alone is life, he alone is love. Or as Peter said to Jesus in John 6, when all of Jesus, or almost all of Jesus' followers are abandoning him because they're confused by what he's saying... Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it's very clear that Peter is saying, nobody else has the words that you have. I don't understand what you're talking about, Lord, but I'm not going anywhere because your voice is the one that I need, even if I don't always understand. Conversely, if in listening we listen to the utterly unique voice of God who is life and love, then in refusing to listen to him, we choose to listen to lesser voices that are not life, are not love, even if they seem like life and love in the moment. And we've only touched on a few of many reasons we could give as to why we should listen to that, but we'll move to the second question. What does it look like to listen to God's voice above all the other voices that surround us. Okay, I get it. I should listen to him. What does that look like? Well, the Shema has an awful lot to say about that. We orchestrate our lives. We orchestrate our lives in such a way that personally and corporately, privately and publicly, the atmosphere we breathe is saturated with his word, with his voice. We orchestrate our lives in such a way that personally and corporately, privately and publicly, the atmosphere we breathe is saturated with his word. That is, to breathe is to breathe in his word because we're, it, the atmosphere is so permeated by it. Now, God has given us all the raw material we need. He has not remained silent. He has revealed himself. He has spoken abundantly to us. It's our responsibility to take that material and saturate our lives with it so that we will know him better and better and love him more and more that we will be ever reminded of him so that we will live and love. Here's a good occasion to point out that I don't know what it's like to be a preacher who preaches a text like this and feels that they can stand in front of a congregation and say, I've already done this. I am your example. I do this perfectly. I have grown in this. And it's been beautiful and wonderful. God has been faithful in the midst of it. I have had to do a lot of work in this area, and God has challenged me. How are you going to get up and preach that tomorrow, Leo? With your help, please. I need this too. Deuteronomy 6, let's just look back at verses 6 through 9. We'll read it very quickly. Just so that we can hear this saturating the atmosphere. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And Deuteronomy 11 said many of the same things. Now, I have preached this text, and Pastor Ken recently preached this text, and applied it to parenting. That's an absolutely fair application. But, Deuteronomy 6 is not primarily about parenting. It's about living a listening life. Here we are told that in order to listen to God, we must create, nurture, maintain a visual, an audible environment of remembrance. Don't just hear what God has to say and walk away. Engrave his words in your mind. Tattoo them on your hearts. Get them off the page, into your head, down to your heart. And if you do so, they will show up in your life. The saturation will. God's word is faithful. It does not return to him empty. Isaiah 55 as well. So make sure that you're surrounded by God's word. Talk with your kids about them. But not just for their sake, for yours. Sitting around the house, talk about what he said. Discuss his commands when you're traveling. Heading to bed, reflect on his promises. Waking up to start the day, remind yourself of who he has revealed himself to be. What about this, tie them on your hands and bind them on your foreheads? Well, scholars suggest that this is really symbolic of It should show up in our actions and in our perspectives, in what we do and in our worldview. Is the word of God so infused into your life that it affects how you go about your daily work and how you view the world around you? Is it the foundation of your labors and the filter of your perspectives? That's what's in mind here. Write them on your door frames. That is, your home should be a place filled with God's word. Write them on your gates. That is, your life outside the home should be a life filled with God's word. It should be evident. But here is where we get into a problem. All too often, if we're honest, we try to fake it. This is not about faking saturation. If saturation in God's word is not happening in private and personal ways, the communal and the public attempts will fall short not just about putting up appearances. Just because I hang Hobby Lobby Bible placards on my wall, and I do, and just because I post the verse of the day to my social media account, which I don't, don't judge me, doesn't mean that automatically I'm actually permeated by God's word at the heart level. It's about the atmosphere and flavor of our lives, not the decorations and the declarations. What's the difference? In a word, marinating. Marinate in God's word, this is your application, marinate in God's word well, and the flavor of knowing him, the one who is life and love, will permeate all that you do. God promises this over and over. Marinate in God's word well, and the flavor of knowing Him, the one who is life and love, will permeate all that you do. And it will be evident. Steak is really boring. I was wondering if anybody was going to walk out when I said that. Let me explain. I discovered this the first few times that I tried to cook a steak for myself. I thought it was simple, go to the store, buy a steak, come home, put steak on pan, cook steak thoroughly, take steak off, put it on plate, take bite. I did all those things, it was really disappointing, it was bland, flavorless, I mean, okay, there was protein, it was good for me, but this was, maybe I bought the wrong steak, all right, well, I'll buy a different steak this time, It's probably the quality of the steak, and so I repeated the whole process and had the same result. And then I would go to a restaurant and order a steak. And it was like flavor, shrapnel, exploding everywhere. It was awesome. What is going on? What's the difference? Why are their steaks so good and mine are terrible? It's because steak in and of itself actually has little flavor, if any. A delicious steak is largely about how it is cooked, and specifically the flavors it marinates in. You might have noticed that I didn't mention anything about marinating the steak in anything. Some of you who are cooks and chefs are like, I know what you did wrong. You're really dumb. I am. It's true. What we marinate in in our lives will determine the flavor of our lives. Eventually it will come out. What I marinate in shows up in my life. And so if we marinate in God's word, personally, corporately, privately, publicly, it will be naturally evident, and it will mark us as the people who listen to the utterly unique voice of God. We don't have time to give a lot of practical application. You can do that on your own. There are hundreds of ways you can go about this. But one of the ones that God has given us is the practice of communion which we'll enter into now.